are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. Justin here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, this week's episode features myself and veteran stage, screen, and voice actor Raphael Sparge, and we chat about growing up behind the stage, acting methods, breaking into the business, Once Upon a Time, Mass Effect, and more. And as usual, if you enjoy the show and feel so inclined, please leave us a review wherever you're listening. And without further ado, here you go. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. So, Raphael, take us back in time. You're a kid. What sort of things were you into? Were you a big reader? Did you watch a lot of movies? Build forts? What's your childhood like? <laughs> I had a sort of a very unusual childhood because I grew up in New York City. I had two artist parents. Uh, my mother was a, a, a railway costume designer, and my dad was a, a wacky artist and painter and photographer and filmmaker and we lived in a commune we moved into a commune when i was about four and a half four four and a half on the lower east side of manhattan it was an old abandoned firehouse it was uh wild uh it was wild Um, (laughs) sounds wild you know it was at the time the lower east side was pretty um it's pretty tough i mean we were very much the only white family it was extreme poverty and a lot of you know uh it just was a it was not a not a neighborhood people generally went into who looked like us they had this vision and and we moved in with all these people into this into this firehouse and and i spent a lot of time playing with the neighborhood kids basically uh running around they taught me uh how to jump backs of buses and you know we used to <laughs> we used to uh hang out in this one abandoned kind of lot and wait for small furry animals meaning rats to kind of come and we'd throw rat throw bricks and you know, it was a pretty urban uh a pretty urban experience you know as far as what i like to do i mean to finish that i guess is to sort of say when i was living at the firehouses because i was living on the lower east side uh someone approached they were looking for kids from sesame street and so i got on sesame street it was like one of the first years i think it was the first year or one of the first years of of sesame street in 69 and it was uh <laughs> i remember meeting you know big bird and oscar the grouch and this guy bob i'm sure if he, he's probably long gone but he sat us down on a stoop and sang to us and and then mr hooper put me on a donkey and <laughs> about horses and donkeys and i had all these vivid memories i did about four or five of them and I, and I and i guess apparently my mother said that they offered me a contract to be on the show and she said no because she didn't want to be a stage mother it was you know just hanging out in the big drafty warehouse and and uh, who knew what sesame street was and she had her own career and, and then she also said you know look if you want to be an actor you got to figure this out yourself you know like it's going to be you know it's too hard you know you'd want to kind of uh 
she didn't want to be a stage mother. So that that was interesting, you know, because my parents were crazy and artists. Uh, we moved around a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was teaching at NYU, and then we moved up to Yale, and she was teaching at Yale at the Yale Drama School when a lot of really fancy people were there, like Meryl Streep, Courtney Weaver, Weston, Wendy Walters, wow. and a lot of... A lot of amazing folks and and um anyway i started doing some play they needed kids and so i did some plays up at, at the at the yell rep in new haven and then i started watching things like star trek and then i started watching things like uh, there was the late 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 movie i think or the million dollar i think it was a late 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 movie anyway they had like a J- jimmy cagney week or something and every night they'd be like <laughs> a jimmy movie. i just remember going oh my god I think that was the moment where I thought, that's that's it. Like, that's it. And then I loved Fred Astaire. And then I had a huge crush on Shirley Temple. Oh, my God. I had such a... And I was so brokenhearted when I found out that she was actually married. <laughs> <laughs> the point that I discovered her. And then I learned to tap dance. I remember tap dancing. She inspired me to tap dance. I don't tap dance anymore, but that, that was pretty fun. You know, I guess like a lot of kids would, you know, sort of kind of my mom was, a, was working and I'd come home and I'd watch TV, you know. And a lot of those things were, I loved the Wild Wild West and I loved, uh, uh, and I saw at least every episode of Star Trek. That's the original, of course, the Shatner one, at least three times. And then when I was 10, I remember I went to my first uh, Star Trek convention and I got dropped off. This is in the days when, you know, back... I don't know, in the 70s, it was like literally like, <laughs> here's 50 cents and a cigarette. She's like, I'll catch you later on. It was such a different world, man. It's just so wild, the crazy stuff. Anyway, so I remember going to the Star Trek convention and wandering around, you know, by myself. And, and I just remember being so amazed at the people and the outfits and the and Star Trek, Star Trek stuff. And and then Gene Roddenberry was there. And he the spoke. Man. Yeah, it was really, and I remember it vividly because he, he put something in my head. He said, you know, one day he said you're going to be able to go to your television and watch whatever you want and i thought wow that's wild because at that you know there were three stations at that yeah. point. and i got his autograph i remember that i was I'm pretty excited i still have his it's somewhere in a drawer somewhere but i have i have his autograph and then i started collecting comic books this was this is that that moment before you discovered girls i got really <laughs> into comic books um build up to it uh, in a really intense, like a uh, prepubescent way, I guess. Um, I just started buying, buying, buying comic books, and I and I would, you know, go. We we're now living in Brooklyn, and then I would go and and get my take whatever lunch money I had and go and. I don't know. I guess I'm sort of a, a mini geek, but th- those are the things that I kind of were sort of into, and and I and I had kind of a, I guess you could say, sort of a left of center upbringing. Just to poke at that uh, Star Trek interest for a second, what did you think when The Next Generation came out? Were you one of the ones that were opposed? I wasn't opposed. I knew a bunch of those actors. They were friends of mine, and I was excited about that. Clearly, there was an appetite. There is an appetite for Star Trek. You know, it's such a, right. it's such a, it has, it's such a visionary show, and it holds up, and it holds up in a, in a million iterations. I'm dear friends with Armin Shimmerman, for example, in, in mm. the in space. You know, so, so like, you know, there, there's so many different ways to tell these wonderful stories. And I, Armin, though, I have to say, and I tell this to him all the time, Armin had to go through, I think, something like four or five hours of makeup every morning, and then three, and and those days are. Freakishly long, right? They're like right. 12, 14 hour days. I don't care what you're doing, 14 hours. It's too much. <laughs> and then you got to add the makeup on either side of that. And and it would get hot. I think he's a superhero. I truly, I, I think Armin is one of the great, anyway, he's a great guy. And his wife, Kitty Swanker, dear friends, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm, I don't, I'm wandering off into the woods. No, Armin's great, but when you say his name, the first thing that pops into my head is Principal Snyder and Buffy. That's, oh, yeah. that's one of my favorite roles of his. Great actor. He's great. He's great. <laughs> Along the ride, you know, you just mentioned you were into comics, you were into Star Trek. When did you start taking or pursuing acting seriously? Maybe say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. I can do this. I did a bunch of those plays, and then, again, my mother was designing it, and they just needed kids. And I grew up backstage, right? So I would hang out with the actors, and I would help my mother age costumes. She'd be doing some big period epic, and they'd have to have, you know, mud on the on the armor and I'd be, you know, <laughs> so fun to be there. And they were cool people. And the actors always like, they were so nice to me and they would sort of adopt me. And I guess it's sort of what it must feel like to join the circus, right? It's like, oh, wow, the circus is in town, that's magic. And yet <clears throat> there was nothing about it because it was all coming at it from kind of backstage. There was nothing about it that was about, hey, I want to be famous or hey, I want to be you know, looked at. It wasn't that remotely it was really about this kind of sense of it being a craft and it being <clears throat> something you work on and something then you uh, you evolve career something you evolve I mean I, I don't think I would have ever had the words for that then but that's what I I saw everywhere right I remember seeing Meryl in some of those early plays and and you know because I would go to all the dress rehearsals of all the shows and being you know kind of like what's that what's that whatever that thing that Mel Street has is I mean mm-hmm. you can see it then right so anyway my mom and I moved back to New York I decided to be an actor so my dad took my headshots because he's a photographer my mother had an actor friend uh and and she said well call her so i called her and she said well here's my agent's phone number give him a call i'm 13 just 12 just turned 13 i was like okay very <laughs> precocious kid and, and so i called them made an appointment got on my bike went across town over to the you know the agent's office and i went in and i said hey you know and i had a real resume at this point i mean i like had a couple credits right and like uh-huh. so well, we don't take child clients, but, you know, what? what's your story? And, th- and I said, well, they said, who is your representation before? And I said, representation? What, what's representation? I don't know what that is. And they, they said, well, okay, do you, do you sing? And I said, oh, yeah, I sing. And I'd been in a boy's choir, and, I, and I'd sung Boy Trouble in this choir. We actually went to England, St. Canterbury Cathedral. But, but I, I was like, oh, yeah, I sing. And so I broke into the treble part of Handel's Messiah. <laughs> Oh God, it's really a precocious kid. Anyway, so they they're like, whoa, okay, we gotta we gotta we're gonna send you out. So the first thing they sent me out on um, was like a Jello commercial, and I got it. I got my uh, SAG card. I started studying in New York. I started going to all sorts of classes, and then I actually started making a little bit of money in commercials, so I could afford the classes. And my mm-hmm. mother again had nothing to do with it. I mean, I, I figured it out where by which I could work and then bring the contracts home to be signed because I was a minor. You didn't have to be on the set. There are no child labor laws, at least there weren't then in New York. And so I could go and work and then come back. And so I, I started, you know, in Shakespeare in the Park at 16. I did my first Broadway show with Faye Dunaway at 16. Started my first movie at 17. And then I did Risky Business as I was graduating mm-hmm. high school. And I went to school with some fancy people, people who've gone on to be very fancy, including Matthew Broderick and Kara Sedgwick and Kenny Lonergan, uh, who's won a lot of Oscars and um, nominated kind of a writer, director, and then Mike Diamond, one of the Beastie Boys. So it was, it was, a, wow. it was an art school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we did plays together. I remember doing one of Kenny's first plays at the theater there. And there's something about being in New York because you can get around because there's, there's public transportation and you can kind of find your way. And because we had this sort of kind of a, I want to say almost like no supervision. <laughs> I've spoken to other people who lived in New York at the time. I was like, you know, did your mother ever, you know, like, nope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, just kind of like you just sort of found your way, and, and you know, and, and New York, New York was an artsier, kind of rougher place than it is now. 
it's still kind of rough, but that's what I love about it. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, the the whole the whole kind of deciding to be an actor just sort of came, I think, out of kind of being around the community and and being with around the actors, working in the theater, and creating something magical. And it seemed like oh, that seems like that would be really fun. Theater is my first love. Um, it's mm-hmm. where I feel most at home. I haven't done a lot of theater in a bunch of years, but I, it's something that I really do hope to come back to. You know, when they say born in a trunk, I, I was kind of really literally like backstage. My mother did a play on Broadway. It was a sort of a, sort of a famous flop. It literally was called The Freaking Out of Stephanie Blake. And it was this giant musical, giant play that opened and closed on, on opening night. My mother brought all the costumes home and I remember putting them on and like doing a show. <laughs> and my, my dad took a picture of me. Anyway, so I, I mean, I was around these things and it, and it just seemed, I guess it seemed like, yeah, let's go, you know, let's go to the circus. It just seemed like the right thing to be, right place to be. When you just said theater is your first love, as an actor, what are some of the challenges that theater and theater and screen, some of the differences between those two and the challenges that one presents as opposed to the other? Any theater actor will tell you that it is the greatest experience to be in front of a live audience. There's just nothing more enlivening than that experience. In addition to that, what you learn doing plays is not what is encouraged. It's not a skill set that you need to do a movie. When you do a movie, you know, they, they take all the sequence of all the scenes and they basically schedule them. It's called boarding them. And basically they schedule them so that you, you know, you might do the first scene somewhere in the middle of the movie and the last scene like the second day. And, you know, like it's all out of order, right? So so you have to figure out a way to kind of create a cohesion and an arc because obviously when it gets all put together, you know, you have to kind of have thought of kind of where you might be in the trajectory, right? right. So doing plays really helps that enormously. Doing plays also gives, I mean, I always sort of feel like theater actors, you know, just have a bass note, as it were, like a bottom note that because of what it, what's required, that sets them. I mean, I, I often feel like I can see them, see that in an actor. It's tough work. I mean, you do, mm. you know, if you do a New York uh, schedule, what we schedule, it's eight shows a week. Two on Wednesday, two on Saturday, one on Sunday. Sometimes it's, you know, two on Saturday, two on Sunday, and then you're off on Monday. And, you know, you're only working two hours a day, but... It's, it's all out. You know, you got to really uh, blow it out, right? And to, right. to create that, to find it in that moment, depending on the show, right? But even a, even a comedy or a musical, you know, it's, it requires an enormous amount of energy out in order to be able to kind of create it and create something on the air. The other thing is that, of course, a play, the, the actors become a living, living breathing uh, organism. You know, the four instruments, for example, in a chamber piece, you know, it's all about the listening and about the breathing and about kind of how we feel one another so do you create the music and that's also of course what's so wonderful about doing a play is that you are listening and you are engaged you're listening to the audience as well particularly when you're doing a comedy because they'll tell you when it's funny and they'll tell you when it's not (laughs) so there's a wonderful way to understand the mechanism of how what's involved in being an actor and when people say like hey give me advice being an actor you know i mean i i I don't know how this all works. I, I just feel like it's just such a bizarre, you know, you feel like it's life such a zigzag. And then, of course, you turn around and you look back and you go like, oh, I guess that was kind of a straight line. In point of fact, I have no I have no tips for how to get into being, you know, an actor. But when I started and, and where things are now, it's very different. What I can say is that my work as an actor has, in, in the theater, has informed everything it, it is really it's my training and it's it's what i rely on and it's it's you know when you when you're stuck with a moment in a in a scene and you don't know how to quite make it work it's it's my theater training that essentially gives me sort of a you know some rabbit to pull out of the figure out how to make it how to make it kind of sing 
since you had so much theater training early on, when you make that initial jump to screen, did you have to, because a lot of folks that I talked to that start in theater speak about how they have to bring themselves down because they're not trying to reach the back row and they kind of struggle with that at first. Yeah, there's some of that for sure. I mean, you, you know, I, I don't know, like for whatever combination of reasons, I, I didn't struggle with it. There have been times in my life where it's been a little harder than others, maybe because I'm doing too much training uh, or too much voice training, for example, so that, you know, my voice sounded a little too Juilliard or something you know I don't know what not that I'm I never went to college actually but but there are things you know there's a lot of training there's a lot of acting training that I think is really my humble opinion which is really about justifying itself in a way and and it doesn't necessarily give one a chance to just find you know what's your creative how do you creatively find your way to something and when I've been as a teacher sometimes when I've worked with actors who've had a lot of heavy training conservatory training sometimes it's a matter of kind of trying getting them back to their i want to say kind of like their childlike instincts again you know like like you know, like okay I know, okay 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 i know you can do you know check off and i know you can do it probably in the original russian but i want to i want to just like let's just see if we can find this moment like just you and me like just let's just play sometimes training can actually kind of um turn out acting robots i i think it's my humble opinion and and, and that you know, and people then go, look, how come I can't work? I've got all this training. And, and I don't know that training is, it's not the solution to figuring out how to act. You have to have training. I'm not saying that, of course, right. but I am saying that sometimes actors, when they get nervous, for example, they go to their training, they go to their actor. And, and sometimes you need to actually not do that. You want to actually just go to your human and bring your human forward, you know? Well said. Sesame Street by the time you're four, Broadway by 16, and you mentioned Risky Business, Tom Cruise. What are your memories of that set when you think back? Was it kind of nuts? Very memorable. I mean, I I so many memories. Tom was, you know, it's hard to imagine now because he's just such a, such a phenom. I really enjoy Tom. I mean, I enjoy, I so enjoy watching him. He's so, got so much charisma. He's just so watchable. He's just always so watchable. I, I just was reading a review about, you know, the new Top Gun and and the reviewer said, look, you know, you may have to turn off your brain, but, you know, at the end of the day, you can't help but love the fact is that, you know, this guy is so interesting to watch. And, and he is. And, and so, but before that, before he was kind of a... Global figure. Tom, Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. right? um, he was a sweet kid. We were both, you know, I remember both of us um, hanging out a bunch. He, he was very good friends with uh, Sean Penn, who was shooting Bad Boys, uh, a movie that Sean did early in his career uh, in Chicago as well. So we used to hang out, all of us together. I remember thinking that Sean was just really kind of intense and a little scary. <laughs> Not far off. <laughs> there is a, I've told this story a couple of times, but I, I was on the set and this is actually sort of a, a, a fun, quirky factoid. But if you watch Risky Business and there's a moment where Tom, you know, his parents are away and he gets in the, he gets in the Porsche and he turns on the, you know, turns, you can see that it's a shot from the, up, from the outside of the car and you see the taillights come on and that great, you know, tangerine dream come, kind of comes on, a boom, 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 whatever it is. And, and, and then suddenly you think, oh my God. And then the car stalls and then he turns it back on again and then he backs out. Sean is actually in the car with him that night. Um, he was visiting the set. In the script, it's, it's um, Bronson Pinchot. But as it turns out, Sean was just hanging out and Bronson wasn't there at that moment for that <laughs> shot. And so Sean's in the car with him, uh, which is fun. I wonder if that's in the little uh, movie factoids or if that's an original Raphael note. <laughs> I, 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 I told it on a, another interview several years ago, and, the, and then I've seen it pop up since. Because I, I was, I mean, I was there. I was on the set. So I remember. But it's kind of fun. 
So I got to ask you about one of your credits specifically. Uh, you were involved in the TV series Werewolf. Yes. How how did that happen? That you cannot find that show at all anymore today. It's really? pretty much gone unless you've gone through perhaps illegal means a few years ago to get it. But yeah, I loved that show. Great effects. Yeah, they were great effects, and it was a really cool show. I remember getting the part of playing the guy that basically bought bit the guy. <laughs> <laughs> who became the werewolf, right? I've sort of yeah. in, the, in that first episode. So he's the reason why there was a series. And then he ends up, the character, I think, ends up dying. I think, I can't remember what happens. But but yeah, it was pretty fun. I mean, it was it was definitely, I think it went on for like three seasons or something. Three, four yeah, seasons. yeah. The guy, is his name Eric something? What was his name? Oh, you asked me. I'm going to have to Google it. All right, you have to look it up. That's what got me Google. Um, but <laughs> anyway, he, he really sweet guy. Really handsome, really sweet guy, really just kind of charming, really landed this great big job. And, and it was like, and he was great. And it, it was a fun show. And, and I, I didn't keep watching it, uh, you know, uh, at some point, but I but I do remember it being it. It was really fun. And I remember thinking that it was also really well shot and, and kind of a, a, a cool, a, a cool show. Yeah, it's one of those cool cult shows that just kind of disappeared, you know? Not yeah. available digitally or physically or anything, really. So you've done a lot of voice work as well. Was that something you felt you had a knack of early on, or was it just a sort of an audition came about and it happened naturally? Yeah, you know, I, I did commercials for years and years and years, on-camera commercials. Um, and again, that was to sort of, you know, as a way to kind of support myself, particularly when I was in New York City at the time. And it was, uh, and I did, for like 20-some-odd years, I did commercials. <laughs> At some point, I want, as I was working more, I wanted to be on camera less and be able to still, but still be able to figure out other income streams, right? Because, I mean, as actors, we work. Sometimes you can get well paid for a short amount of time and then poof, it's gone. And you've got to somehow squirrel that till the next job comes along or residual. Or if you can find other ways to make, make some money doing what you do, that's, that's the way to go. So at the time, uh, video games were relatively a, a new phenomenon, 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 and and I and I did a bunch of them, and I and I happened to audition for um, this incredible game. Um, well, two. One is Knights of the Old Republic, which has been you know remade multiple times, and or been it's been kind of reintroduced, and and they're doing it again. And then I'm doing Mass Effect, uh, or did Mass Effect, um, which was again just had no idea that it would be such a giant thing. You know, I can't. I just the Mass Effect community is uh, one of the most loving, caring, passionate community. I mean, I I just adore being a very small part of that game, and I, and I am uh, whether you know people like to run up to me and tell me whether they killed my character in Vermeer or not. Um, I, I'm 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 happy either way that you're happy. Like it doesn't, it, it's okay. I don't take it personally. What I can say is that Bioware, who created the game, they are you know there's good and there's great, and then. There's Bioware. Top notch. Yeah. It's just there's just nothing, you know. And and they did they did something. I mean, the game has been sort of compared to kind of like the Star Wars of video games in a way. It was very close. Like, yeah, that's that's fair. I'm just repeating what I've read or what yeah, I've heard. Yeah, that, that's that very had fair. A way of sort of defining something that had been previously undefined, mm -hmm. and, and and that obviously lots of lots of wonderful imitations and then furthering of that they did something with story that was really profound they did something with a form sort of a kind of a naturalistic approach at that point because a lot of the video games that i'd done up until then were kind of more charactery in a way mm -hmm. and and what they had said at the time is no no we want it more like an episode of 24 we want it really real very kind of like cinematic or keep it grounded Jenny McSwain was the director that kind of, you know, really directed that at the time. And, and she was had such a wonderful ear for 
what that was and then where we were off track. And I, and I just give her so much credit at the time, as well as, of course, then, you know, everything that happened the design, the writing, and the world that was created, which is so rich. And then, of course, you know, because <laughs> BioWare is so astonishing and so ahead of everything, is that they knew that there was going to be a pandemic. They planned it. They're like, okay, <laughs> let's have a pandemic. Whenever we need it the most, we're just going to drop this, you know, legendary edition because people are going to be at home and they're going to need, you know, to kind of like, you know, be entertained. And so we're going to do that for them. And, and they did. And God bless them. They are really not only hit a nerve, I think kind of created kind of like a nuclear explosion of sorts, you know, with a community who, yeah, know, really, it's meant so much to them. And I, you know, I've, people have found me on Cameo and, 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 and other, you know, kind of social media sources and, and just expressed to me how, how it's kept them going, how it's kept them, how it's kind of their way to stay strong, how it's about, you know, more than just a, it's so much more than a game, right? Right. Um, and so, again, I, I just, it is such a privilege to be in this community. Whether you killed me in Vermeer or <laughs> I still love you. So sidebar, do you, when people come up to you, do you feel like more people kill you or more people did not kill you? You know, it seems to break down on sort of gender lines in a certain sense, uh, a little bit. I mean, because you've got this Ashley, who's this, you know, hot chick, basically. So a lot of guys seem to kind of gravitate to her, which I understand. A lot of women stay with Caden, and a lot of gay men, LGBTQ community, love Caden. Also, Bioware did two specific things. They brought more women into gaming than anyone else prior to that. And, and again, that was because of the relationships, I think, because of the writing, right? And, and that wasn't just with Caden, it was obviously lots of other characters. In addition to that, they were also the first kind of uh, video game to be able to sort of recognize the ability for two characters to be same sex and have romances, same sex romances. Fantastic, amazing, so important. Um, this was pre-Prop 8 and it was such a wonderful thing that they had kind of embraced it. So this was just a way where, you know, I think the media that is what we consume and, and is so important to us and affects our imaginations and is, is a part of our our lives, our inner lives, and our ways of thinking influences how we think. It, it had a powerful effect on, on, I think, in terms of kind of really all of us moving in the right direction. Anyway, so I, I know that that was part of, you know, Caden, the guy who, the guy who's the model, uh, who is not this face, um, <laughs> uh, is very, very pretty. We were at uh, Comic Con in San Francisco, and it was like, you know. <laughs> the face, the voice, the voice, the face. You know, we did pictures together. It's sort of funny. Anyway, I, I think it's probably brought, I think it's a generalization to say that it's just general lines because I, I know there are lots of guys who love Caden and, and there are lots of women who prefer Ashley. But, but I, you know, the thing that's cool, this is what I will say about it, is that Bioware, the Mass Effect universe, it sets it up so that that choice, that choice in Vermeer is so epic and you as a player then, I think, have a kind of a physio, psychic, emotional experience to understanding consequences. Because when you make that decision, the game goes this way. What's so powerful about it is not so much even who you choose, I think, but even just the fact is that it creates such an emotional response in everyone who then makes that choice. There are people that write me and say, I always keep you in Vermeer, you know, and, and the people say like, oh, I killed you in Vermeer, you know, sucker. And, you know, great, like, great, <laughs> whatever. But isn't it interesting that that actually is like a powerful thing for you as it relates to kind of what they did in terms of the storytelling, because it really is, that's all made up, right? And that's just sort of a, but people have these sort of really powerful emotional responses to that decision. 
Right. You said yourself you started doing voice acting when games were relatively new. Well, in terms of voice acting and games being relatively new. So how has that process technologically wise behind the scenes changed for you from when you started to now? Is it night and day? Yeah. I mean, it's so, I mean, just the way everything is, it's all virtual now. You know, you're in a session with everyone on Zoom. It's a little, I did a game during the pandemic and and I remember, do you remember that point where it, like it just, like you felt like you were taking your life in your hands going to Rite Aid and, and, and it all just felt scary. And, and I, you know, we're all sort of asocialized, you know, and, yeah. and we're social animals. But I remember going to this session in the midst of COVID, you know, we had to wipe down everything and spray it and, you know, test it. And I, I think this was even before the, maybe even before the test. And I don't remember, but I remember the director on camera and I'm in the booth and I just remember like, Oh, someone's talking to me. It was just sort of like a, it was a kind of a, it was more of an antiseptic experience. It was a bit more kind of um, uh, like get in the trench and we'll all dig it together kind of experience, at least initially. That said, obviously, it's become much more efficient. I mean, we used to actually get pages of scripts. So when we'd go into Mass Effect, we'd have a four-hour session. They'd say, okay, here. And then you would take the page and you'd turn it. And I would just let them drop on the floor. And then I would just sort of like, and then I'd collect them up afterwards. But, you know, it'd be like all your lines <laughs> on that page. And, and now, of course, it's all... You know, whiz bang and computer, all that. So yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny. Um, it, it, I mean, the technology has changed us uh, in every in every way. So I've been holding off on it. Once upon a time, one of the biggest shows on television during its run. Can you just take us through how the opportunity came about for you and how you ultimately landed the role? It's a funny story. You know, my son is in his Django. I dropped him off at preschool once, and apparently, so the story goes, his teacher said, "Django, you're dead." He looks familiar. What does he do? And he thought for a second. He went, um, he auditions. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. It's what we do, right? We just spend <laughs> all of our time auditioning, you know, and we actually get a job. It's like, oh, my God, I got I show up and someone gets me lunch and I hit my mark and say my lines and then I go home and audition again. So I audition for it, the old fashioned method. In the pilot, it's only honestly just like six lines, but it was a relationship with Dr. Hopper, AKA Jiminy Cricket and and Henry, his in a way at the time it was sort of almost like he was a surrogate dad in a way or an uncle. You know, I had my son. And and so that relationship was I love Django and, and it was a, a easy relationship for me to find, right? I think, you know, in the wrong hands it could seem a little weird or creepy. I don't know, you know, so so <laughs> so they said they said they'd seen a bunch of people and they, they felt like you know, look, the casting on the show was amazing. I read the script and I was like, this is incredible. They'll never be able to pull it off. It's way too <laughs> ambitious. But this is great. Like on the page, like, whoa. We shot it and then uh, we were all, you know, nervously showed up a kind of a screening. Eddie and Adam, Kitsis, they're the creators and the showrunners and, and they had a screening room at their agent's office and they said well we don't know yet looking good i'm sure it was picked up they just didn't say anything <laughs> you know here, here it is well the lights went out and it was the whole cast right it was just us jenny and josh and lana and and jennifer and you know tony mandola and i and i think lee was there uh lee Ehrenberg and a bunch of the canadian actors weren't there because it was in los angeles mm. you know we, we love them but but anyway the lights came up and we were all just gobsmacked like holy moses like not only was it good but it was so much even better than i had even possibly imagined it could be and and and, and this is where you know again what's so fun about filmmaking is that it is a communal art you know mm -hmm. it is a it is a group effort uh, people really come together and and bring their specific little bit of artistry to make everything else sing and so once my time was up 
you know, very complicated show, lots of costumes, lots of visual effects, you know, people going back and forth, really interesting stories, wonderful complex parts for actors. There are so many people that went into making that really special, but there was, a, I think, an enormous amount of pride taken in the making of it, because mm-hmm. at some point we all realized it was something really special. I mean, I remember even the guy parking the cars once in Vancouver was like, we love this show, my family watches it every week, I'm just so happy to be here, you guys are great, and it's thank you so much, and, you know, like, I'm so happy to be, you know, on the show, you know, so there was a sense, like, through the ranks, like, right. wow, this was something that we were all that we all felt special about and and I I also know again and this is a testament to the writing is that that really led the way you know to take characters that you sort of knew like you maybe you'd seen them elsewhere or read about them and so you already have a relationship with them right you sort of like you think you know them but then get reintroduced to them mm-hmm. and then actually put them in a mosh right together and then tell their backstories which is wicked cool and then by the end of it you go like oh my god so these are people that you already knew but now you really know in a whole new way so what that what that did then was that all these people all these families said that they would watch it together because grandma loved it loved the costumes loved all the you know the cute boys and girls and and all the fun stories but then also five and six year olds who weren't scared by some of the stuff loved it and then everyone in between mom and dad i mean like it it had it had a little something so so in a world that is or was well that is still so kind of segmented in terms of people's viewing and in terms of what you know everyone goes to their device now to watch whatever this was sort of a sunday night kind of gather around and enjoy gather around the fire basically and enjoy it and, and it seemed like it had something for everyone and, and so i was always so moved and again amazed that they had been able to do something that actually brought everyone together it's so hard to think about it i mean how many shows now even have something that everyone wants to watch i mean there's a gajillion gajillion channels and there's so much to watch and Mm -hmm. it's so it's so hard anyway to figure out anything but you know i mean i'm just overwhelmed by all the amazing shows but at the time have a network show that spoke to that many people and then internationally i get tweets and letters and digital postcards from from (laughs) literally all over the world yeah Uh, and that's because these stories and you know an american entertainment doesn't the term is travel, right? It doesn't travel. It doesn't, it, it does well in America. Like American comedies don't generally play well in, in Italy. They do, I mean, some of them do, but, but I mean, it's, 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 sometimes things are relegated to the country that they're made in. And, and this was a, this is a show because these stories are so kind of universal, these myths and, and legends and, and, and Grimm's fairy tales and all the stuff that they sort of, and the Disney that they took from spoke culturally to so many different other places in the world. And so again, just an amazing thing they did. Just an amazing thing. Not that we didn't know that it was wonderful when we were doing it, because we did, but there's that thing sometimes when you look back, even at a distance, in a way, it becomes even more remarkable. Yeah. Um, because of, of, you go like, wow, that's lightning in a bottle. Like, that was really, um, really something special. And, and, and of course, you know, now it gets to sort of live on in, in Disney Plus world. And, <laughs> and I've, had all, I've had a whole bunch of people sort of say, I've just discovered it, you know, and how fun. And, and I, I'm now watching, you know, the entire six seasons again. It's like, Oh my God! <laughs> oh, but wow! But I mean, it, that, that's that's you know obviously what what's so. It, I think it will have have a kind of an evergreen kind of quality. You know, people will keep right. coming back to it. 
And you said it there, man, uh, that gather around the fire kind of ageless, depending on, you know, grandmother, young kid network type of show is very few and far between. It's almost dead, I would say. Like in the 90s, you had the era of the sitcom, maybe Family Matters and Full House and stuff like that people would watch. But yeah, yeah, yeah. but not anything recently that I can think of. I think once upon a time, maybe last of a dying breed of show. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I I can't say. It sounds like you're more of an expert than I am in terms of just culturally, in terms of what's out there. But it was re- it's really unusual and remains extraordinary even even at a, uh, even as time goes by. I'd say I'm a consumer, not an expert. Speak with authority. What can I say? <laughs> you mentioned this too. So um, you're dealing with characters that we all know. So and that have a history. So how do you approach that history as an actor? Respect it while adding your own sort of touch on it. Well, with Jiminy Cricket, I was extremely nervous uh, because he was such a uh, he's such a beloved character, and I didn't want to mess it up. I loved this whole concept of him being, you know, a therapist. You know, let your conscience be your guide. Um, I love this whole idea of that came out in the script, which was this idea that he had basically done the wrong thing for so long, and that he had, in, in doing the wrong thing for so long, he had ultimately determined that he didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted to dedicate his life to doing doing the right and thus he became who he was the thing that saved me uh ultimately and what i clung to um was the script and the writing i mean when i auditioned for it and they said oh they want you to play jimmy cricket and i was like oh what do they want like a voice match and i and then i said i mean I, I, you know like what like what do you jimmy cricket like what do you want and they said no no just keep it real I think in a way that was kind of the hallmark, right? Kind of the keep it real is very much what they banked on and grounding. And, and people like Lana and Jennifer and Ginny and, and Josh, who did so much heavy lifting in terms of just year after year after year of so much complicated story. At some point, it got a little complicated for me. That's just my opinion, because uh, it just was so everyone was everyone's brother and sister and aunt and uncle and son. And I lost track of like, I remember watching at one point, there was actually there was actually like a running tape at the bottom, which actually was sort of explaining like so-and-so is so-and-so. And so, you know, like you had to kind of know the references, the Dark Queen and this Queen. So it got a little complicated for me. But that said, you know, that the actors keeping it real was really kind of what uh, again, I think a cornerstone for how it was approached, and I and I I know that was encouraged, and I and I think that that again created the approachability and the the emotional connection that people had to these characters because they were just so genuine. So you could go back in time, take a second crack at a role, maybe take a different approach. What would it be, and why? Oh my, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> I mean, I think roles come to you at a point in time because there's something in you that kind of emanates something in the story in other words there's some part of you that is in line with what they want in terms of the storytelling and in terms of kind of the the currents in you you know the the tremors and 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 electrical static that is in your life at the moment because i i I don't i work inside out and not outside in i I do tend to kind of like it i just kind of put myself in that place and let it let it happen i don't really second guess i also I'm also not a big one to go back and watch a lot of my work. And, and a lot of times I don't even watch my work at all. I mean, I watched a whole bunch of the once upon a time because I loved the show. I was a fan of the show. But as, a, as it got deeper into the shows, I, I didn't watch anymore. And, and, mm-hmm. and I, I was just on The Rookie and, and I, for example, and I, and I haven't watched it yet. I'm not sure if I will. I mean, I, I love doing it. It's not like about The Rookie. I love The Rookie. It's just that I don't, I don't, like I, I've, I did it. I had the experience and, I, and, and it seems to have worked. And I'm, and I'm happy about that. I guess I don't go back and second guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great answer. 
what's the best piece of uh, acting advice you've received in your career? It's not his week because he just basically, I think, got fired from a show. But Frank Langella, I did a play with Frank Langella. Mm-hmm. And Frank is a giant actor in the theater. There's almost no one alive that does what Frank does. Um, and I have such profound respect for him as an actor. So we did this play called Booth is Back. Basically, it's about the lives of Edwin and Junius Booth. It's a fantastic story um, about a father-son relationship. At the time, at the time, I, I sorry, there's a little bit of an involved story. Maybe you're fine. Uh, at the time, uh, he was doing uh, My Fair Lady in, at Houston Grand Opera, in, and we were sort of overlapping. So we were rehearsing during the day, and then he was doing the show at night. So in the play, in the play that we were doing, Edwin Booth was, was his father's dresser. Um, and that was actually historically accurate. And so what happened was, Frank had a dresser, but I was sort of, you know, for a couple of performances, sort of was sort of a surrogate dresser, you know, kind of in the preparation for the role, as it were. Frank wasn't a singer, but he did this, you know, part in My Fair Lady, and, and it was a big show. And the Houston Grand Opera, for anyone who's seen it, is stunning. It's like a jewel box. It's so huge and massive and and before the show starts basically there's a there's a scrim that you would stand behind as the actors on stage and all the audience would be you know rumble 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 coming in and and he sort of put his arm over my shoulder and i remember looking out i had a towel over my neck so because i was his dresser and i and i remember just being kind of sort of overwhelmed by this sort of sense of kind of like wow standing on stage and feeling the kind of the energy from everyone coming in and i said frank do you ever get nervous and he looked at me and he said, no, I think, let me at him. I love that, you know, that place where, you know, you can get to in your work where you can think, well, you're leaning forward, you're at that place where you want to go, just, you know, let me, let me at him, let me, you know, just like the appetite, the hunger, the kind of the, that, that is the hallmark of Frank on stage. That's why he's so exciting to watch on stage. And it was a great acting lesson. Have you seen any recent films that have moved you? Yes. I just saw the, uh, the Mincemeat, the Mincemeat movie, Mincemeat Affair, I think, Mincemeat, which is a lovely British film for Netflix. My cousin is, does the PR at Netflix, and so I went to a screening of that, and it was, it's, it's wonderful. A sort of old-fashioned kind of period epic, which I, which I really loved. What else? God, I, I just gone blank. There's so many wonderful movies that we saw. I've gone blank. I'm sorry. No, I, it's, I, it's okay. I, Happens I, to me every day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's probably uh, too much time alone. I don't know. <laughs> well, Raphael, just to wrap up here, like I said, I'm not going to keep you all evening. Uh, what's on the horizon for you? Anything in the pipeline? I guess I'm, I'm in uh, this show called Gaslit with Sean Penn and Julia Roberts, um, and that'll be airing. I'm in the, some of the later episodes, and I'm excited about that. Thrilling to work with Dan Stevens from, uh, and, and Betty Gilpin unbelievable actors love them wonderful 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 experience i met a couple of video games that i can't talk about but those are fun i've been doing a lot of work as a director so i'm i've just finished a a documentary feature called only in theaters uh about a really uh substantial and renowned and beloved family called the lumley family who runs an art house cinema in los angeles that for a for three to four generations there's been a lumley in the movie business since there's been a movie business it's sort of about kind of the journey that this family goes through and 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 now we sort of backed into all these challenges with what's happening with the future of exhibition i had some wonderful filmmakers talk to me like cameron crow and Avery verne and uh, james ivory and uh, alison anders and nicole hall center and anyway lots of lots of oscar winners um were interested in and in talking about this and about about the lovely theaters and about how much it meant to them. Um, we're uh, out to festivals at the moment. We'll be, you know, hopefully coming to a theater, you know, near you in the fall or in the early 
you know, early part of the new year. That's that's the plan. And uh, you can find it on. The, I've got we've got a Facebook page which has updates. We're at festivals. Perhaps we'll be coming to festivals, you know, near you. Um, but I'm I'm very proud of the movie. Um, and then I just directed a, a four part uh, docu series for PBS that'll be out in in uh, January of 2023. I'm just editing that now. So um, and that's set in Watts. And uh, there'll be more about that as we get closer. But it's a, a wonderful story. It's a privilege to be a part of it. Awesome. Thank you for giving me some of your time this evening and chatting yeah, with me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. You have a great rest of your evening, and I'll see you down the road, man. All right. Man. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.